0: RAC's post Podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. Over summer, we'd like to share with you some interviews from the recent past. These stories have proven popular among fellows over the last couple of years and they're topics we believe new listeners to Rack's postdoc podcast may enjoy too. We do hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Katrina Hutchison from June 2017. Harassment and bullying in the workplace is often intentional and conspicuous, behaviour that can and should be firmly dealt with as it happens. But there exists in many organisations less obvious behaviour which can have harmful consequences, and in surgery can result in devastating harm to patients. Unconscious sexism occurs when neither the victim, often a woman, or the perpetrator is even aware it's happening. Unconscious sexism in surgery is a topic Dr. Katrina Hutchison discussed at the college's recent annual scientific congress. Dr. Hutchison is a research fellow at Macquarie University's Department of Philosophy. Her work covers surgical ethics, focusing on surgical innovation, new medical technologies, robotic surgery and artificial organs. Dr. Hutchison has co-authored a recent paper on the disproportionate harm to women from surgical device failure titled Hips, Knees and Hernia Mesh – When Does Gender Matter in Surgery? First, what is meant by unconscious sexism? Katrina Hutchison explains to Chris Ashmore.
1: Basically, this refers to sexist behaviour or language that the perpetrator is either unaware of or that they're unaware is sexist. So, for example, when social psychologists started to investigate this phenomenon, they realised unconscious biases affect all sorts of behaviour and decisions that we make, from how we speak to one another to how we evaluate people's performance. A striking example that is often talked about is um, in the patterns of recruitment So research by Claudia Golden and Cecilia Rouse in the 1990s, for example, found um, that the introduction of a screen to blind those on selection committees to the identities of people auditioning for positions in orchestras had a significant effect on the hiring rates of women. And more recent studies suggest that blind evaluation of CVs makes a big difference and particularly they've done studies where they've taken the same CV and put a woman's name at the top, or a man's name at the top, and they find that that same CV will be evaluated differently by hiring committee depending on whether it's a woman's name or a man's name, and people aren't conscious that they're doing these things. Well, where
2: do these unconscious biases come from? From wider society, or can it manifest organically within a workplace or organisation?
1: One of the main sources of unconscious bias is stereotypes that come from wider society. Stereotypes aren't necessarily always harmful. So an example of a not obviously harmful stereotype would be when you're in a cafe and you're trying to work out which person is the waiter. You may be looking for someone dressed in black or carrying a notepad. And these are just helpful cues that probably allow you to get the attention of the right person. The kinds of stereotypes that lead to harmful implicit biases are generally stereotypes that are based on someone's social identity, so their gender or their race or their sexual identity that are negative and another feature of harmful stereotypes tends to be that they're quite resistant to counter evidence. The stereotypes come from wider society but you asked me about whether there are also features of local workplaces that can be important and I think it's true that the features of the local workplace can either mitigate or exacerbate the effects of stereotypes on the way that people are treated within that workplace. So if you've got a diverse workplace where all of the um, surgeons, for example, are treated with equal respect and collegiality, that's going to tend to mitigate the effects of any wider stereotypes about which sorts of people are surgeons that are at play in the wider society. Whereas if you've got a workplace that's not very diverse or where people who have visibly different social identities are disparaged, that's going to tend to exacerbate the effects of um, these negative stereotypes on the way that people are treated within that workplace. And implicit biases as well as explicit ones are going to be much more likely to have a negative effect on people's experiences at work, for example.
2: Well, these biases can often be subtle and uh, there are three forms of subtle exclusion, implicit bias micro-inequities and faith in meritocratic measures. Can you explain each of them and their significance?
1: Yeah, look, it's a very helpful distinction, I think, that can be made between implicit biases and micro-inequities. Implicit biases are ones that the perpetrator is unconscious of or unaware of. They may be very small things, But they may also be things that are quite obvious to other people or to the person that is on the receiving end. So if somebody's speaking to your chest rather than your face, that might be quite obvious to you and it might be very obvious to other people, even if the person doing it isn't really aware that they're doing it. And similarly, sometimes people will post outrageous things on social media, for example, that it's obvious to people who've reflected on it that this is, you know, sexist, for example. But it's not until you point it out to the person who's posted it that they are aware that it could be interpreted that way. So you might say that those are manifestations of implicit biases, but, you know, they're quite noticeable. Other forms of implicit bias may be much subtler. Micro inequities, on the other hand, may or may not be conscious, but they tend to refer to things that are very small and the effect of which tends to be cumulative. An example of this that would also be unconscious is the way that eye contact occurs within tutorial groups. So observational studies suggest that teachers make more contact with male students and less contact with female students in tutorial groups. Neither the students nor the teachers are aware that this is happening. And in any given occasion, whether someone makes eye contact with you or not may have no impact on you. But the cumulative effect of having less attention paid to you and kind of the effect of that on your perception of your own visibility can have downstream effects. So that's an example of a micro inequity. And I've said micro inequities may or may not be conscious. And you can think about whether someone says hello to you in the corridor or, you know, whether they smile at you or not. Those are things that are quite small and the effect on you might be quite subtle, but the person may well be aware that they're doing it if they tend not to say hello to you in the corridor. So it can be intentional. But when you try to call it out, you tend to sound paranoid if you said such and such never says hello to me. It's going to be very difficult to kind of make a complaint about that or to generate any kind of momentum for change. So I think the distinction between implicit biases and micro inequities can be quite helpful for teasing out the differences between things that are unconscious but may or may not be large and noticeable and the things that may or may not be conscious but are very small. The other one that you mentioned was faith in meritocratic measures. Now this is probably better thought of as an example of the way that implicit bias or micro inequities can kind of manifest and Most hiring processes and selection processes uh, these days, somewhere like Australia, tend to be based on merit to the extent possible. But what you regard as being an indicator of merit in a particular area may or may not really track the things that are important for doing that job well. An example in surgery might be someone's dedication to their patients and professionalism are obviously features that are very important in a surgeon. And sometimes in order to be a dedicated surgeon and dedicated to your patients and a good colleague and to show professionalism, you're going to have to work outside of the hours that may perhaps you've been rostered on or you're going to have to be kind of available to your job in a way that you might not have to be in other careers. But people may tend to think that the willingness to work long hours Or to work excessive hours is a kind of indicator of this sort of dedication to your job or your dedication to your patients and colleagues or your professionalism because it would tend to be an indicator of your willingness to be available to your job in order to fulfil those responsibilities. But of course working long hours per se isn't the same as being dedicated to your patients and being professional. And in some cases, it may even be inappropriate. It may be that you're taking on too many patients or you're doing work that could have been done by someone else and you're underperforming because you're tired or because you never get a chance to recharge. So that idea about undue faith in meritocratic measures is really more a concern that measures that are perceived to track merit may sometimes be tracking other things.
2: Well, if we can turn to the world of surgery in particular, Katrina, how can unconscious biases affect a woman's career in surgery?
1: Yeah, look, I've, I guess the example that I just gave you of faith in meritocratic measures is already an example of that. But look, there are many ways that subtle forms of exclusion like implicit biases and micro inequities can affect women's careers in surgery. There's a lot of research on on the effect of these factors on women's careers more generally. So the effect of implicit biases on the evaluation of CVs, for example, is going to be the sort of thing that's going to affect who gets given certain kinds of opportunities or selected for certain kinds of jobs. And if you're not being given opportunities or you're not being picked for a job because your CV's being discounted because the name at the top is the name of a woman, then obviously that would have an effect on your career. Another... And perhaps a more subtle way that these things can affect you is a phenomenon called stereotype threat. This is an example where unconscious biases actually do affect the person's performance, not just the way that their performance is evaluated. The way that stereotype threat works is when you're in a role where you perceive yourself to be different from other people who are in that role or what people's expectations are gonna be of who's gonna be in that role, that can increase your anxiety about your performance and that anxiety can affect the way that you perform in the role because you're conscious of how people are perceiving you rather than being in a state of flow and focusing on what you're doing. An example of this that, that I sometimes use comes from philosophy actually where women are also underrepresented and a philosophy professor who describes the experience of going to give a presentation in a department she hadn't been to before. She walked into the seminar room, all of the people in the audience were men and in addition The pictures on the wall were kind of pictures of, you know, well-known philosophers from the past like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, the kind of idea of the kind of elderly, bearded Greek philosopher. And she says she started to underperform as she was presenting. She was thinking of herself as being quite different from the people that were there. The fact that she was a woman was made salient to her. And her mind went blank and she was struggling to talk about things that were extremely familiar to her as a professor of philosophy. And later she told the people in that department about the experience that she'd had and they just changed the pictures on the wall and made that room into a room where The representation of what philosophy was, was more inclusive and more diverse. And that's the sort of thing that you can do to counteract stereotype threat. But stereotype threat is quite different from the way that people evaluate you when their evaluations are informed by implicit biases, because it may in fact affect your performance. And I think people have to be aware that the environments that they're creating, that people are working in, may not only be unpleasant, but they may also lead to differences in the performances of people working in the environment because of the impact of anxiety.
2: When it comes to harassment and bullying, those guilty of doing it can be somewhat sanctioned. But what's the answer to tackling unconscious sexism in surgery?
1: Yeah, look, of course, we don't want to be punishing people or humiliating people for biases that they're unaware that they're perpetrating. And particularly often implicit biases, you know, we're all subject to them. And just because you're a woman doesn't mean that you won't exhibit implicit biases towards women. So it's the in-group as well as the out-group, I guess, that can be perpetrators of this. And it isn't very helpful to respond to these in a punitive way, obviously, particularly when the implicit bias contradicts the person's explicitly held values, which may be quite egalitarian. So I think the most important thing is just education and awareness raising. I think often when people do have a commitment to equality, but they might nevertheless be influenced by implicit biases, once they become aware of what those are, how to identify them in themselves and in their workplace, and what sorts of factors can help to mitigate against them, they'll be quite willing to take that on board and to make changes. So I think awareness raising is extremely important.
2: Gender biases not only affect women in surgery, but have significant consequences to patients. And you've co-authored a paper on the disproportionate harm to women from surgical device failure. You examined two cases, metal-on-metal hip prostheses and hernia meshes. Can you take us through those issues?
1: What I think is similar in both these cases is that the devices were approved onto the market on the basis of apparent similarity to existing devices without independent clinical trials having been done of this particular device in this particular patient group. That's a feature to some extent of the way that medical devices are approved and it's partly due to the Pressure for companies to get devices onto the market, which comes both from within the company because they want to be able to start marketing the device as soon as they can, it also comes from patients and clinicians who want new treatments that may be better than existing treatments to be available on the market as quickly as possible, too. So, I think that the take home message, or one of the take home messages with approval of medical devices, is just that it's very important to do clinical studies with the full patient group that's going to be receiving the device. If it's going to be going into men and women you want to do clinical trials that involve men and women. If it's going into younger and older patients you want that to be reflected. Different sizes and shapes and ages of patients you certainly want to be reflected in the clinical studies the mesh case there was another issue which was that the repair of vaginal prolapses which was the use that's associated with the bad outcomes is quite different anatomically from the types of hernia repairs that the clinical trials had looked at so it seems as though in this case there was just a inattention on the part of regulators to thinking about what the anatomical differences and the differences in the safety profile might be of repairing you know abdominal hernias as opposed to transvaginally repairing vaginal prolapses, which may technically be a kind of hernia, but they're really quite different and the safety profile is quite different.
2: Well, is there a need then for more women to participate in clinical trials in order to achieve better outcomes from surgery?
1: Obviously, there needs to be a trial in order for women to participate in it. And in the case of the MESH, there just really weren't clinical studies of this you know before it was approved for the by the FDA for example to be marketed for the treatment of vaginal prolapses in women there wasn't big clinical trials done on its use for that application in women and so of course women couldn't participate in the trials because they weren't happening there have been some trials since on the other hand Some trials and cardiac devices such as implantable cardiac defibrillators are the case that comes to mind here. Some trials seem to be conducted on mainly male cohorts and sometimes that's because of a perception that you want to limit the diversity of the cohort in which you study a device for the first time to ensure that the effects that you're seeing are really effects related to the device and not artefacts of differences between people within your cohort. And I think obviously it's quite undesirable when you have a very narrow cohort of patients that you conduct the clinical study on and then you apply the findings of that study to a much wider and more diverse set of patients who might really not have the same outcomes with the device. And so I think it is it is very important that people who are approving and regulating and funding clinical trials are thinking of the impact of the selection of the patient cohort for those early studies on the quality of the results when they're applied to wider patient cohorts. But finally and historically, there was a tendency to exclude women from research and to advise women against taking part in research because, for example, of the perceived risk of harms to possible unborn children that they might be pregnant with. And so women and potentially pregnant women were regarded as kind of vulnerable research subjects and there were restrictions on what kinds of research they could participate in. And I think that that still has an effect on the way some people are thinking about who they recruit to trials and the sorts of information they might give people when they're recruiting, but it also has had an impact on the data that was collected historically. And when you've got devices now being approved on the basis of their similarity to devices that may have been tested in clinical studies in the past, those study cohorts may have been predominantly male because they were the norms at that time. So even changes that are happening now may not necessarily result in the clinical evidence that new devices are being based on clinical evidence from studies that had a lot of women in the cohort.
2: Well, there's even a view that trials involving women are problematic because unlike the male normal body, uh, women's bodies are deviant. Is that a widespread view?
1: Look, I don't think most researchers are going to use that word (laughs) in their funding applications or indeed in their conversations with one another. However, it's certainly true that for some clinical conditions in particular, there is a concern about, for example, the impact of women's monthly hormonal cycles on parameters that may be being measured in the study. So I think in the history of kind of clinical studies of cardiac disease, for example, there has been a concern that women's hormonal cycles might influence some of the clinical parameters that are being used to measure the effectiveness of treatments or the unfolding of the disease, and that those differences might kind of corrupt the results or might mean that you need a larger study cohort in order to be sure that the results that you're getting are valid. Now, of course, the flip side of this is that women's monthly hormonal cycles might also be influencing the nature of certain kinds of diseases in women. So there is quite a lot of evidence that cardiovascular diseases are slightly different in women, men and that they may be kind of underdiagnosed. The same treatments may not be prescribed but they may also not be equally effective in women as men. So the right way to respond to those diseases may be slightly different. And of course if you've ruled out studying a group of people because you think that their hormones may be affecting the results, you may be turning a blind eye to the fact that those very same hormones are having an impact on the progression of the disease in those people and also the likely effectiveness of the same sorts of treatments. So I think those are the sorts of considerations that have informed decisions sometimes to exclude women from certain kinds of trials but of course that has harmful impacts if the treatments are then, the treatments that are found to be effective by those trials are then marketed to both men and women without any sensitivity to those reasons that might also be reasons that the disease is different and that the treatments are less effective. Another thing that is quite interesting is that even in animal studies, people will order all-male mice for their studies of certain diseases or certain treatments in animal models. And again, just in order to eliminate these kinds of variables that they might be worried might give you misleading results. But I think there is a kind of perception that perhaps the male body is the norm and that those results will then apply or generalise to all other kinds of bodies, and that may not be true.
2: Well, another issue you've researched is the influence of gender on clinical consultations. How does gender affect patterns of communication between surgeons and patients?
1: There have been some studies of the influence of the combination of doctor and patient gender on the way that clinical consultations unfold, And they do show that there are quite distinctive patterns of communication that differ depending on the gender of the clinician and the gender of the patient and the combination of their genders. And I guess the concern is that maybe this is another place where stereotypes are having an influence on the sorts of questions that people are asking, the sorts of answers that they're giving, maybe their manner, how paternalistic their manner is or how authoritarian clinicians are being. When I mentioned earlier some of the micro inequities that people measure one that is often discussed relates to how someone's question or contribution to a discussion is received by a teacher or by others and there is a phenomenon where the same question asked by a woman has been measured as receiving maybe a shorter answer or being more likely to be dismissed in comparison to when that question is asked by a man. And you can imagine that if this kind of phenomenon is occurring within clinical consultations, it might mean that the quality of the communication that's going on is being influenced by stereotypes. And, of course, that can have an influence on the decisions that clinicians and patients are making about which treatments are appropriate and the timing of treatments and these sorts of things. So I think there needs to be more research done on this question. But there are some reasons for thinking that there might be something going on here that would be worth further investigation.
2: Well, you've identified a wide range of ways in which gender matters in surgery. What steps are needed to move forward from here? What can be done?
1: It's quite important to understand what some of the specific forms that some of these biases take in surgery are. I think there are specific characteristics of clinical professions and maybe surgery in particular in terms of the way that surgeons are interacting with other health professionals, the hands-on nature of surgery, the involvement of nurses, anaesthetists and other people who are, who are involved in the surgical procedure, the way that the surgical pathway takes a patient kind of through different kinds of preparation, the operating theatre, recovery, And rehabilitation and also the interactions with patients and all of these interpersonal dynamics that are involved in surgery are also inflected by particular kinds of power relationships and also institutional hierarchies within hospitals and clinics so I think it is quite important to understand how all of those factors that some of which are quite unique to surgery might result in particular forms of subtle bias and exclusion affecting both women surgeons and women surgical patients. And so I think more research is needed on on what particular forms these exclusions are taking within surgery. But look, the other thing is just a kind of raising of awareness. And, of course, the College of Surgeons has responded, I think, very proactively in the last couple of years to concerns around bullying and harassment in the profession. And that's very heartening to see. And I think there is a lot of will within the College of Surgeons to address some of these issues, but you can only address issues that you're aware of and you can only tackle biases that you understand. And this is why it's so important to have information about what forms these kinds of things might take within surgery in particular. And look, I'd say that there's a lot of, you know, the the operating with respect program that's been unfolded by the college is an example of the sort of thing that can be incorporated into surgical training that can make a real difference to the culture of the profession and the expectations that trainees perceive to be sort of active around what it takes to show professionalism as a surgeon. And I think it's just getting this further research into what sorts of forms these biases might take so that those efforts can be expanded to include things that may currently not be visible.
0: Dr Katrina Hutchison, Macquarie University. RAC's Post-Op Podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. You can reach the Bongiorno National Network on plus 613 9863 3111.